0: And I'll be reading 1 Samuel 21 and the first five verses of 1 Samuel 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, "'The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here.' And David said, "'There is none like that. Give it to me.' And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, "'Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances?' Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart, and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, and pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen, that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house?' David departed from there, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And every one who was in distress, and every one who was in debt, and every one who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about four hundred men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you, till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold, depart, and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herath. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. The first time I remember telling a lie was when I was quite young and it was a lie to my mom and this is when it becomes awkward to have your mom as part of your church. (laughs) We went to a store. It seems like it might have been a shoe store. I was quite young and there were some balloons there. They may have been giveaway balloons. I'm not sure, but I took it without permission and so I was in the car playing with the balloon and my mom just simply asked, where'd you get the balloon? And I immediately composed a lie. Nobody told me how to do that. I just was able to come up with that on my own. And I said, oh, well, they gave it to me in the store. And that was that. Now, what did I do? I I lied to get myself out of a difficulty. And if you have never lied to get yourself out of a difficulty, or at least shaded the truth in such a way that it was not exactly the whole truth, That I want to shake your hand after this because you're the first person that I've ever met who has not ever done that. We have a situation here in which we're coming into the middle of this story. David continues to flee from Saul, and he finds himself in one difficult situation after another. And difficult is probably to minimize, not only difficult, but dangerous and life-threatening. And what we find David doing is resorting to desperate or even deceptive measures to get himself out of these scrapes. And what we find at the same time is that God keeps providing for David over and over and over. And we're going to see these two things that go through the story, David using his desperate measures, And God continuing to provide, and we're going to try at the end to see if we can put these things together in some way. So we have the first desperate measure was in verses 1 to 9 of chapter 21. It says, David went to Nob. Now, this is the first time we hear about Nob being a sanctuary city. It seems like it's moved there. Perhaps it's the new sanctuary city. And he found there Ahimelech the priest. Now, this is beginning to tie some things together. Ahimelech was most likely the great-grandson of Eli. And you remember Eli, the priest when 1 Samuel opens, and how Eli was rejected and his, sons, his two sons died. But he did have grandsons, and this seems to be one of the great-grandsons of Eli. So the line of Eli is still surviving, even though there was a prophecy against them that they would eventually would be cut off. Now, Ahimelech the priest, finds that David's behavior is suspicious. So David comes up by himself. And Ahimelech says, why are you by yourself? And then David gives an answer to assuage his fears. And if we look at this answer, and even in the most charitable reading of this answer, it is at least partially deceptive. It says, the king has charged me with a matter And said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. Now that may be true. It may be that the king at some point had charged uh, David with a matter. But that wasn't why he was there. Uh, And then he says, I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. That may well be true that he had the, the young men of his group hidden somewhere. And then he asked for sustenance. He asked for five loaves of bread or whatever Ahimelech had on hand and um, Ahimelech then said well I don't really have any bread to give you but I do have the holy bread. I have the holy bread and then he said have you all kept yourselves from women? Are you are you ritually pure? And David said oh yes and David said you know even a normal normal outings were ritually pure. How much more this one, because what we're doing now is such a holy uh, 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 adventure that that the king has sent us on. Now, what is this holy bread? If you go back to Leviticus 24, verses 5 to 9, we learn about 12 loaves of bread that were baked weekly, and they were placed in the sanctuary before the Lord. And every Sabbath day, they they were placed there. And then they were taken away, and the, uh, the the priests, Aaron and his sons, would eat it in the holy place. And it says, "Since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offering, a perpetual due." So it was his part of his payment, uh, Aaron and his sons. It was for the priest. But Ahimelech says that, well. Um, if you're ritually pure and under these circumstances that you can have five of the loaves, uh, that must have been what was left, five of the loaves for the uh, the men of David. And so he gave him the the bread there. Uh, in verse 9, so the priest gave him, or verse 6 rather, so the priest gave him the holy bread for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence which is removed from before the, the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken Away. Now, uh, this is an incident that shows up in the New Testament. And so we actually have a, a commentary about this this incident. And we find that in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus basically gave a lesson based on this in chapter 12 of Matthew, verses 1 to 8. We have a situation in verse 1 of chapter 12 of Matthew... Jesus was going through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Then it says, But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And then Jesus said, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. So he refers to this incident. And then uh, he says, have you not read another, another thing, is that the, the priests work on the Sabbath day in the temple, and that's in verse 5, but then he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So he gives four lessons from this incident. The first lesson is this. My disciples didn't do anything wrong. So he defends his disciples. The second is this. Jesus is superior to the temple. So it's, it's his temple. He's superior to it. And so he has control over what takes place in the temple. The third is... Mercy is more important than sacrifice. More important uh, in the case of, of the priest and David's, David's men, more important were the hungry people before him than the strict application of the, the ritual law about what to do and not to do with the bread. So mercy trumps uh, sacrifice. And the fourth thing is, and that was the situation in the time of Jesus, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He, it's his day. Which is, what's that to say? It's to say that he's the Lord, because it's the Lord's day. And he's saying, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. So he, he, he gave several lessons, the most, uh, the most direct of which was, mercy is more important than ritual sacrifice. Now, if we go back to 1 Samuel 21, we have a verse that seems to come out of nowhere. But make a sticky note in your mind. Verse 7 it says, now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord. It's not clear if he was arrested or somehow uh, physically detained or just circumstances detained him there. His name was Doeg the Edomite. So he's not a, uh, he's not a Jew. He's not an Israelite. Uh, he is the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So he's in Saul's employment. Just keep that in mind for next week. And then we get back to the story in verse 8. David has some bread. And then he says, do you have a sword or a spear? And then David once again gives at least a a shading of the truth. He says, for I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. It did require haste because David had to get out in order not to be killed. The king's business was to kill him and he didn't have time to gather his weapons." So Yes, strictly speaking, that's true, but that's not what he communicated to the priest. And then the priest said, well, the sword of Goliath, the Philistines here. Now, David had a right to that. Even even if he didn't have a natural right to the bread, he had a natural right to the sword. Why? Because he had won it in battle. He had killed the the giant, and he won that. That was his to take. And so the, the priest said, if you want it, take it. And Dave said, there's no sword around like that one, and I'll take it. Now, why would there be no sword like that one? Why would that be different? It would be huge. Now, we don't have the dimensions of the sword, but we do have the dimensions of other pieces of the armament, and they were huge. And so this sword would have been, been very large. So that's the first desperate measure and God's provision. What did God provide? He provided food for David and his men, and he provided a means of protection and defense. Then we have the second measure and the second provision. The second desperate measure is almost inexplicable. It is hard to imagine David doing something like this. It seems so foolish to do this. And what is that? In verse 10, David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. The king of Gath. Gath. That's Goliath's hometown. So he shows up in Goliath's hometown with probably with... Goliath's oversized sword, and there was none like it, and he thinks he's going to get sanctuary there. This seems inexplicable. Now, we could perhaps understand it um, by thinking about it this way: that's one place that Saul wasn't going to go looking for him. So, So at least it was a it was a good hiding place in that sense. And maybe we don't know how much time there was between the killing of Goliath and now. Maybe David's beard had come in, maybe he had a little bit of gray at his temple. We don't know uh, if, he, if he thought, well, I've changed, I look different, uh, maybe they won't recognize me. But lo and behold, what we have is that the servants of Akish they listened to Israeli pop music. And they had heard this refrain, you know how pop music, the, the refrain stick in your mind whether that you want him to or not. Well, the refrain stuck in their mind. And what was the refrain? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And they said, this is David, your, your highness. This is David who has wiped out thousands of your men. And he, they called him, interestingly, David, the king of the land. The king of the land. In verse 11. Now, does that mean they were misinformed? Maybe. Maybe they were misinformed. Does it mean that they knew about David's secret anointing or private anointing? Probably not. Probably what we have here is an example of what we find sometimes in Scripture of people speaking more truth than they know. That they're declaring something that we, the readers, know is true or will soon be true, but now we realize that even even the nations are declaring David to be the king of the land. And so David uh, took these words to heart. He realized he wasn't going to escape notice. And so it says that in verse 13, he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands, in their hands, and that in their hands may be that he had been arrested. And so this, this, uh, they, they may have arrested him and brought him before Achish, And so he he pretends to be insane, which is really another deception, isn't it? He wasn't insane. He's pretending to be insane. And so he acts like a madman, as it says here. He makes strange markings on the door. he, He drools in front of the king. And the king says, are there not enough madmen around here? Do you need me to have this foreign madman brought into my presence? And he falls for David's act, and he sends him away. And so what do we have? We have another great escape. We have God providing protection for David after David resorted to another desperate measure that was, once again, deceptive. Now we have a third one in chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. This time David went to a cave, and it says his whole family joined him. So it looks like There's a warrant out not only for David, but it looks like Saul is is trying to persecute the family or maybe hold them hostage, which is a typical measure. If you want to get to bring a fugitive come in, well, arrest the family, and out of love for family, the fugitive could come in. And so it says, uh, verse 1, his brothers and all his father's house heard it. They went down there to him. So now he's got his family with him, including his parents. And not only that, but other people are drawn to David. And who are these other people? These are desperados. These are people that are in trouble with the law. They're in trouble with the IRS, maybe. They're they're in trouble uh, with with different bitterness of soul. Verse twenty, uh, verse two. I'm sorry, of twenty two. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul, gathered to him. So that's quite a a motley crew, isn't it? These are desperate people. These are people that are on the run. These are people that are in trouble. And it says David was able to become commander over them. That's not an easy group to corral, is it? But David, we see that he's exercising leadership here, and he was able to organize these folks into what looks like a military unit. And it says that there were 400 of them. So now David has a cave, which is not a great place to live, but it's, it's some protection from the elements. And now David has companions military companions, and he has his family with him as well. But it wasn't exactly a good place for his aging parents. We don't know how old his aging uh, parents were. We don't know how old David was. But David, in the birth order of seven, which number was he? He was seven. And so his parents would likely have been pretty much older than he was. So this was no place, this band of outlaws in Caves was no place for his parents, and so he had another need, and so what did he do? He went to Moab. Now, um, where was Moab? Uh, Here's Judah. Uh, Judah's between, well, there's the Mediterranean Sea, there's the Philistines, there's Judah, then there's the Dead Sea, and then on the other side of the Dead Sea to the east was Moab. Now, Moab, they were distant cousins of the uh, the Israelites. Um, They were descendants of Lot. You remember Lot uh, with the Sodom and Gomorrah story and the, the Abraham stories? Lot was Abraham's nephew. So these were descendants of Lot, which would make them kind of very distant cousins from the Israelites. But they weren't necessarily friends. If you look back in 1 Samuel 14, verse 47, when Saul became king, he made war on everybody around him, including whom? Including the Moabites. And so they were not on friendly terms at this point. But perhaps that helped David. If Saul was the Moabites' enemy, David shows up and says, Yeah, you know, the guy who's making war on you, he's making war on me too. And could I leave my parents here? So there may have been, well, if they had a common enemy, well, then they were at least co-belligerents, if not friends. That could be it. But we also should remember an interesting detail. David was something like one-eighth Moabite. He had Moabite blood in his veins. If you look at the end of the little book of Ruth, we find that David was the great-grandson of Ruth, The Moabitess. Now, how much of that story got passed on, how much of that the king knew, how much that played in, we don't know, but they probably knew more about their ancestry than we tend to because that was very important, so he may have used that as an appeal. I have Moabite blood. Would you take care of my parents? Because his dad would have been one-quarter Moabite, and so there was a, a connection there. Now, uh, we have then that provision. So we have the provision of a cave. We have the provision of of, uh, fellow warriors. We have a provision of a sanctuary for his parents. And then we have one more provision in this section. And it says, then the prophet Gad. Gad. This is the first time we've heard of the prophet Gad. He kind of comes out of nowhere. He shows up a few more times. But here, the prophet Gad, we don't know anything about his origins. But here, the prophet Gad, in verse 5, said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Kereth. Now we don't know where the stronghold was. There are a number of different speculations. It looks like it wasn't in Judah, but he said, don't remain in the stronghold. And so there are different ideas about where that was, if it were the caves or where that was. But Gad comes along and warns him not to remain there. Now what do we have here? We have the word of the Lord that just out of the blue comes to David. We have the prophetic word of God that comes to David freely, just out of nowhere. It's sent to David. And here's a clear contrast with what's going on with Saul. What had happened with the the prophet and the prophetic word in the case of Saul? Do you remember Samuel said, I'm done with you, Saul. And so the prophetic word departed from Saul. He no longer had the guidance of the word of God. And what we have now is the shifting, the prophetic word. Samuel is about to bow out. He's, he's quite old. And now the, the new generation of prophetic word, to whom is it being attached? It's being attached to, to David. And so in this, in, this, in this chapter, what do we have? We have a, a coalescing, an alignment of the three offices in the Old Testament. We have uh, Ahimelech, the priest who is is helping David and giving him his daily bread, and now we have at the end of it the prophet Gad, who is supporting David and, and warning him uh, where to go to avoid danger. So now we have priest and prophet, and they're coming together to support the future king now let's let's kind of do an overview here, reminding ourselves of what happened and see if we can put these these two. Streams together because we have David's measures and we have God's provision. So, David's measures, what did he resort to? Well, he resorted sometimes to simple requests um, Do you have any bread? Um, may my parents stay with you? Simple requests. He also resorted to partial or outright deceit, and he also w- resorted to his own ingenuity. Now, The text, interestingly, does not stop each time to give a moral lesson. That's not what it's trying to do. It's telling us the story. It's not a a kind of an Aesop's fable, the moral of the story is, okay? And so we need to be careful that we don't turn the text into that. Um, There is no praise or blame of David and what he does or doesn't do here. And while we can imagine that the fear of violent death um, would drive many, uh, including ourselves, to do and to say things that are not completely ethical, we can at the same time, as we read this in the light of God's commandments, scratch our heads a little bit and say, did he really need to do that? Was that necessary to resort particularly to the deceptive measures that he took? Um, Well, if the titles, and we're not sure of this, but if the titles of two psalms are accurate, we have David's later reflection on these incidents. There are two psalms, the titles of which refer back to uh, one of these incidents. If you look at, for example, Psalm 56, which I'm not going to read, but I refer you to it, the title of the psalm is to the choirmaster, according to the dove, on far-off terebinths, a mikdom of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. And then this psalm is a psalm crying out to God, saying, God, take care of me. God be gracious to me. God protect me. But then it looks like there's a later psalm, although it shows up in earlier in, in the book of Psalms, and it's Psalm 34. And the title says of David when he changed his behavior before, and they don't call the king here Achish, but the king Abimelech, um, so that he drove him out and he went away. By the the way, Abimelech was a common uh, title for kings because it simply means my father is king. And so it probably is Akish. So if, if, that's, if, the, if the connections that this, this makes here are accurate, what we have in Psalm 34 are the later reflections of David. And those later reflections help us to understand the lessons that he learned. Let me read Psalm 34 I will bless the Lord at all times, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, and those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cries for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is a much better lesson than how to lie your way out of trouble. And notice that if this is David's later reflection on this situation, he's not patting himself on the back and saying, Do you see what I did there? Do you see how I got out of that? Pretty smart, huh? Did you see how I tricked him and tricked him? No, what he's saying is, you know, when I look back on my life and I look back on the dangers of my life, I want to invite all the people of God to learn this lesson. Fear the Lord. Trust in the Lord. And and, and do what is right. And and he says very specifically, don't practice deceit. You don't need to do that. Why? Why? because you have a better protector than your clever efforts to deceive others, to get yourself out of scrapes. Trust in the Lord, because he delivers his people out of all of their troubles. So that's, that's David. That's David, his efforts, that upon further reflection, if these connections are, are correct, he, he learned other lessons than maybe the ones we might pick up directly from that text. And that lesson is about the Lord's provision, and that, that lesson comes through loud and clearly, it doesn't it? The Lord provides over and over and over for David. While David was resorting to his measures, and we find out later was also crying out to the Lord... God provided for David daily bread. He provided for David a means of protection. He provided for him escape after escape. He provided for him companions. He provided for him a place to live. He provided for him safety and provision for his parents. And he divided, provided for David the prophetic word. So what are we to take away? God's provision for David was not a justification of everything that David did, but a manifestation of his grace which he continually shows toward his children another way to say it is this god's provision does not mean that our sin is okay but that his grace is great that's the lesson that we should take away and another thing about this god and i want to say this respectfully had to protect david why because he had promised that he would sit on the throne And if David were done away with, if David were killed, that couldn't happen. In other words, he had to keep David alive to place him on the throne. And why did he have to? Because he had promised to do that. And so what we have is a manifestation of God's gracious provision, gracious provision, and a manifestation of God's faithfulness to his own promises. And another, another point that, that we can draw as we, we think about these two things. Um, if God is going to get anything done in this world, and he is not simply going to use sinless angels, then he will have to use sinful instruments. Because that's all that's left. If he's not going to use only sinless angels, which he does sometimes if he's going to use, to put it more clearly, human beings to accomplish any of his purposes in this world, then he has to necessarily use sinful instruments. However, we need to remember that as he employs sinful agents, the sin proceeds from the agents. The sin proceeds from the sinners while God's holy purpose stands. And this is, a, this is a striking combination. We can scratch our heads and say, how does that work? How can God's holy will include the, the sinfulness and the sinful actions of, of humans and angels? And we may never be able to put those together in our minds satisfactorily, but we do have a striking example of how they fit together, the most striking of all examples And that is in the death of Jesus Christ. The original disciples preached like this. Acts 2, 23. This Jesus, Peter preaching, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did you see that? The the definite plan of God carried out by the, the lawless deeds of sinful humans. And then perhaps even more strikingly, in chapter 4, another, part of another sermon, or actually a response in prayer, in chapter 4, verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, part of a prayer to God, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand, O Lord, your hand, and your plan had predestined to take place. So God, what is, what is God able to do? God is able to do all his holy will. And in doing so, whom does he use? Well, he uses people like us. He uses crooked sticks to accomplish his straight purpose. And what do we have here? We have in the death of Christ the most striking example thereof. Who's responsible for the death of Christ? God's holy will and the sinful humans who conspired to bring it about. But we also have an example in the career of Christ. The, the same commitment that we find in, in David. God had to keep David alive. So he could seat him on his throne. But then in the case of Jesus, he died. And what is the, the constant message that's preached in the book of Acts? You killed him. They killed him. But What? God raised him from the dead. Why did he have to raise him from the dead? The same reason, because he had promised to seat his son on the throne. And for his son to sit on the throne, his son had to be alive. And now that God has, through the hands of sinful men, brought about the the death of Christ and God raising his son from the dead and seating him at his right hand, he is As those nations declared, he's the king of the land. They said more than they knew. They said it about David. But in an even greater sense, he, the son of David, is the king of the land. And what's he doing? He's bringing together desperate people. He's forming desperate people into his people. He's taking people who are in debt. He's taking people who are bitter in spirit. He's taking people who have have given hope, given up hope on life. He's taking desperate and and hopeless people, and he's bringing us together to make us his own. And not only his own, but he's making us a military unit with, with 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 a mission to accomplish. And that is to declare to the ends of the earth, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose, that Jesus is on the throne, and he's the king of the land, and he will receive anyone who will come to him and bow the knee and place their faith in him. Let's pray. Our God, it's easy for us to justify or excuse our deceptive measures, if not outright lying, shading the truth, leaving out key ideas that would make us look bad or maybe get us in trouble. Lord, I pray that we'd be able to learn the later lesson that, that David gave to us to trust you because you deliver your people out of all of our troubles, not to resort or resort to deceit, but rather to to trust in you and Uh, Recognize that you will provide all that we need, and Father, thank you for receiving desperados like us. Thank you that Jesus welcomes welcomes people who have been in debt debt to you because of our sin, and perhaps in debt to others because of our sins against them. Or thank you for welcoming welcoming us into your people and forming a motley crew into a beautiful bride, and also a military unit so that we might storm the gates of hell, so that we might bring down the powers that be and declare in all the world that Jesus is the king of the land. And we pray this in his name. Amen.